Chapter Two of Fighting France. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Elizabeth Clett. Fighting France from Dunkirk to Belfort by Edith Wharton. Chapter Two In Argonne. One. The permission to visit a few ambulances and evacuation hospitals behind the lines gave me, at the end of February, my first sight of war. Paris is no longer included in the military zone, either in fact or in appearance. Though it is still manifestly under the war-cloud, its air of reviving activity produces the illusion that the menace which casts the cloud is far off, not only in distance, but in time. Paris, a few months ago so alive to the nearness of the enemy, seems to have grown completely oblivious of that nearness, and it is startling not more than twenty miles from the gates, to pass from such an atmosphere of workaday security to the imminent sense of war. Going eastward one begins to feel the change just beyond Meaux. Between that quiet episcopal city and the hill-town of Montmirail, some forty miles farther east, there are no sensational evidences of the great conflict of September. Only here and there, in an unploughed field, or among the fresh brown furrows, a little mound with a wooden cross and a wreath on it. Nevertheless, one begins to perceive, by certain negative signs, that one is already in another world. On the cold February day when we turned out of Meaux and took the road to the Argonne, the change was chiefly shown by the curious absence of life in the villages through which we passed. Now and then a lonely ploughman and his team stood out against the sky, or a child and an old woman looked from a doorway but many of the fields were fallow, and most of the doorways empty. We passed a few carts driven by peasants, a stray woodcutter in a copse, a road-mender hammering at his stones, but already the civilian motor had disappeared, and all the dust-coloured cars dashing past us were marked with the Red Cross, or the number of an army division. At every bridge and railway crossing a sentinel, standing in the middle of the road with a lifted rifle, stopped the motor and examined our papers. In this negative sphere there was hardly any other tangible proof of military rule. But with the descent of the first hill beyond Montmirail there came the positive feeling, this is war. Along the white road rippling away eastward over the dimpled country, the army motors were pouring by in endless lines, broken now and then by the dark mass of a tramping regiment or the clatter of a train of artillery. In the intervals between these waves of military traffic we had the road to ourselves, except for the flashing past of dispatch-bearers on motorcycles, and of hideously hooting little motors carrying goggled officers in goatskins and woollen helmets. The villages along the road all seemed empty, not figuratively, but literally empty. None of them has suffered from the German invasion save by the destruction, here and there, of a single house on which some random malice has wrecked itself. But since the general flight in September, all have remained abandoned, or are provisionally occupied by troops, and the rich country between Montmirail and Chalons is a desert. The first sight of Cham is extraordinarily exhilarating. The old town lying so pleasantly between canal and river is the headquarters of an army, not of a corps or of a division, but of a whole army and the network of grey provincial streets about the Romanesque towers of Notre-Dame rustles with the movement of war. The square before the principal hotel, the incomparably named Haute-Mer-Dieu, is as vivid a sight as any scene of modern war can be, 
Rows of grey motor-lorries and omnibuses do not lend themselves to as happy groupings as a detachment of cavalry, and spitting and spurting motorcycles and torpedo-racers are no substitute for the glitter of helmets and the curveting of chargers. But once the eye has adapted itself to the ugly lines and the neutral tints of the new warfare, the scene in that crowded, clattering square becomes positively brilliant. It is a vision of one of the central functions of a great war, in all its concentrated energy, without the saddening suggestions of what, on the distant periphery, that energy is daily and hourly resulting in. Yet even here such suggestions are never long out of sight, for one cannot pass through Chalons without meeting, on their way from the station, a long line of éclopes, the unwounded but battered shattered, frost-bitten, deafened and half-paralyzed wreckage of the awful struggle. These poor wretches, in their thousands, are daily shipped back from the front to rest and be restored, and it is a grim sight to watch them limping by, and to meet the dazed stare of eyes that have seen what one dare not picture. If one could think away the éclopes in the street and the wounded in their hospitals, Chalon would be an invigorating spectacle. When we drove up to the hotel even the grey motors and the sober uniforms seemed to sparkle under the cold sky. The continual coming and going of alert and busy messengers, the riding up of officers—for some still ride—the arrival of much-decorated military personages in luxurious motors, the hurrying to and fro of orderlies, the perpetual depleting and refilling of the long rows of grey vans across the square the movements of Red Cross ambulances and the passing of detachments for the front—all these are sights that the Pacific stranger could forever gape at. And in the hotel, what a clatter of swords, what a piling up of fur coats and haversacks, what a grouping of bronzed energetic heads about the packed tables in the restaurant! It is not easy for civilians to get to Chalons, and almost every table is occupied by officers and soldiers. For once off duty there seems to be no rank distinction in this happy democratic army, and the simple private, if he chooses to treat himself to the excellent fare of the haute mer dieu, has as good a right to it as his colonel. The scene in the restaurant is inexhaustibly interesting. The mere attempt to puzzle out the different uniforms is absorbing. A week's experience near the front convinces me that no two uniforms in the French army are alike either in colour or in cut. Within the last two years the question of colour has greatly preoccupied the French military authorities, who have been seeking an invisible blue, and the range of their experiments is proved by the extraordinary variety of shades of blue, ranging from a sort of greyish robin's egg to the darkest navy, in which the army is clothed. The result attained is the conviction that no blue is really inconspicuous, and that some of the harsh new slaty tints are no less striking than the deeper shades they have superseded. But to this scale of experimental blues, other colours must be added—the poppy red of the Spahis tunics, and various other less familiar colours, grey and a certain greenish khaki, the use of which is due to the fact that the cloth supply has given out, and that all available materials are employed. As for the differences in cut, the uniforms vary from the old tight tunic to the loose belted jacket copied from the English, and the emblems of the various arms and ranks embroidered on these diversified habits add a new element of perplexity. The aviator's wings, the motorist's wheel, and many of the newer symbols are easily recognizable. 
but there are all the other arms, and the doctors, and the stretcher-bearers, the sappers and miners, and heaven knows how many more ramifications of this great host, which is really all the nation. The main interest of the scene, however, is that it shows almost as many types as uniforms, and that almost all the types are so good. One begins to understand, if one has failed to before, why the French say of themselves, La France est une nation guerrière. War is the greatest of paradoxes, the most senseless and disheartening of human retrogressions, and yet the stimulant of qualities of soul which in every race can seemingly find no other means of renewal. Everything depends, therefore, on the category of impulses that war excites in a people. Looking at the faces at Chalons, one sees at once in which sense the French are une nation guerrière. It is not too much to say that war has given beauty to faces that were interesting, humorous, acute, malicious, a hundred vivid and expressive things, but last and least of all beautiful. Almost all the faces about these crowded tables, young or old, plain or handsome, distinguished or average, have the same look of quiet authority. It is as though all nervosity, fussiness, little personal oddities, meanness and vulgarities had been burnt away in a great flame of self-dedication. It is a wonderful example of the rapidity with which purpose models the human countenance. More than half of these men were probably doing dull or useless or unimportant things till the first of last August. And now each one of them, however small his job, is sharing in a great task, and knows it and has been made over by knowing it. Our road on leaving Chalons continued to run northeastward toward the hills of the Argonne. We passed through more deserted villages, with soldiers lounging in the doors where old women should have sat with their distaffs, soldiers watering their horses in the village pond, soldiers cooking over gypsy fires in the farmyards. In the patches of woodland along the road we came upon more soldiers, cutting down pine saplings, chopping them into even lengths and loading them on hand-carts, with the green boughs piled on top. We soon saw to what use they were put, for at every cross-road or railway bridge a warm sentry-box of mud and straw and plaited pine-branches was plastered against a bank, or tucked like a swallow's nest into a sheltered corner. A little farther on we began to come more and more frequently on big colonies of seventy-fives. Drawn up nose to nose, usually against a curtain of woodland, in a field at some distance from the road, and always attended by a cumbrous drove of motor-vans, they looked like giant gazelles feeding among elephants, and the stables of woven pine-boughs which stood nearby might have been the huge huts of their herdsmen. The country between Marne and Meuse is one of the regions on which German fury spent itself most bestially during the abominable September days. Halfway between Chalons and Saint-Menehude we came on the first evidence of the invasion, the lamentable ruins of the village of Ove. These pleasant villages of the Aisne, with their one long street, their half-timbered houses and high-roofed granaries with espaliate gable-ends, are all much of one pattern and one can easily picture what Ove must have been as it looked out, in the blue September weather, above the ripening pears of its garden to the crops in the valley and the large landscape beyond. Now it is a mere waste of rubble and cinders, not one threshold distinguishable from another. We saw many other ruined villages after Ove, but this was the first, and perhaps for what reason one had there, most hauntingly, the vision of all the separate terrors, anguishes, uprootings and rendings apart involved in the destruction of the obscurest of human communities. 
The photographs on the walls, the twigs of withered box above the crucifixes, the old wedding-dresses in brass-clamped trunks, the bundles of letters laboriously written and as painfully deciphered, all the thousand and one bits of the past that give meaning and continuity to the present, of all that accumulated warmth, nothing was left but a brick-heap and some twisted stove-pipes. As we ran on towards Saint-Menehoud, the names on our map showed us that, just beyond the parallel range of hills six or seven miles to the north, the two armies lay interlocked. But we heard no cannon yet, and the first visible evidence of the nearness of the struggle was the encounter, at a bend of the road, of a long line of grey-coated figures tramping towards us between the bayonets of their captors. They were a sturdy lot, this fresh bag from the hills, of a fine fighting age, and much less famished and war-torn than one could have wished. Their broad, blond faces were meaningless, guarded, but neither defiant nor unhappy. They seemed none too sorry for their fate. Our pass from the general headquarters carried us to Saint-Menehoud, on the edge of the Argonne, where we had to apply to the headquarters of the division for a farther extension. The staff are lodged in a house considerably the worse for German occupancy, where offices have been improvised by means of wooden hoardings, and where sitting in a bare passage on a frayed damask sofa surmounted by theatrical posters, and faced by a bed with a plum-coloured counterpane, we listened for a while to the jingle of telephones, the rat-tat of typewriters, the steady hum of dictation, and the coming and going of hurried dispatch-bearers and orderlies. The extension to the permit was presently delivered with the courteous request that we should push on to Verdun as fast as possible, as civilian motors were not wanted on the road that afternoon, and this request, coupled with the evident stir of activity at headquarters, gave us the impression that there must be a good deal happening beyond the low line of hills to the north. How much there was, we were soon to know. We left Saint-Menehoud at about eleven, and before twelve o'clock we were nearing a large village on a ridge from which the land swept away to right and left in ample reaches. The first glimpse of the outlying houses showed nothing unusual, but presently the main street turned and dipped downward, and below and beyond us lay a long stretch of ruins, the calcined remains of Clermont-en-Argonne, destroyed by the Germans on the 4th of September. The free and lofty situation of the little town, for it was really a good deal more than a village, makes its present state the more lamentable. One can see it from so far off, and through the torn traceries of its ruined church the eye travels over so lovely a stretch of country. No doubt its beauty enriched the joy of wrecking it. At the farther end of what was once the main street another small knot of houses has survived. Chief among them is the hospice for old men, where Sister Gabrielle Ronet, where the authorities of Clermont took to their hills, stayed behind to defend her charges, and where, ever since, she has nursed an undiminishing stream of wounded from the eastern front. We found Sir Ronet, with her sisters, preparing the midday meal of her patients in the little kitchen of the hospice, the kitchen which is also her dining-room and private office. She insisted on our finding time to share the filet and fried potatoes that were just being taken off the stove, and while we lunched she told us the story of the invasion, of the hospice doors broken down, a coup de crosse, and the grey officers bursting in with revolvers, and finding her there before them in the big vaulted vestibule, alone with my old men and my sisters. Sir Gabrielle Ronet is a small, round, active woman, with a shrewd and ruddy face of the type that looks out calmly from the dark background of certain Flemish pictures. Her blue eyes are full of warmth and humour, and she puts as much gaiety as wrath into her tale. She does not spare epithets in talking of 
C'est s'étonne allemand. These sisters and nurses of the front have seen sights to dry up the last drop of sentimental pity. But through all the horror of those fierce September days, with Clermont blazing about her, and the helpless remnant of its inhabitants under the perpetual threat of massacre, she retained her sense of the little inevitable absurdities of life, such as her not knowing how to address the officer in command, because he was so tall that I couldn't see up to his shoulder-straps. Et ils étaient tous comme ça, she added, a sort of reluctant admiration in her eyes. A subordinate good sister had just cleared the table and poured out our coffee, when a woman came in to say, in a matter-of-fact tone, that there was hard fighting going on across the valley. She added calmly, as she dipped our plates into a tub, that an obus had just fallen a mile or two off, and that if we liked we could see the fighting from a garden over the way. It did not take us long to reach that garden. Sir Gabriel showed the way, bouncing up the stairs of a house across the street, and flying at her heels we came out on a grassy terrace full of soldiers. The cannon were booming without a pause, and seemingly so near that it was bewildering to look out across empty fields at a hillside that seemed like any other. But luckily somebody had a field-glass, and with its help a little corner of the Battle of Vaucoy was suddenly brought close to us. The rush of French infantry up the slopes, the feathery drift of French gun-smoke lower down, and high up on the wooded crest along the sky, the red lightnings and white puffs of the German artillery. Rap! 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 went the answering guns, as the troops swept up and disappeared into the fire-tongued wood, and we stood there dumbfounded at the accident of having stumbled on this visible episode of the great subterranean struggle. Though Sir René had seen too many such sights to be much moved, she was full of a lively curiosity, and stood beside us, squarely planted in the mud, holding the field-glass to her eyes, or passing it laughingly about among the soldiers. But as we turned to go, she said, They've sent us word to be ready for another four hundred to-night, and the twinkle died out of her good eyes. Her expectations were to be dreadfully surpassed, for as we learned a fortnight later from a three-column communique, the scene we had assisted at was no less than the first act of the successful assault on the high-perched village of Vaucoy, a point of the first importance to the Germans, since it masked their operations to the north of Varennes, and commanded the railway by which, since September, they have been revictualling and reinforcing their army in the Argonne. Vaucoy had been taken by them at the end of September, and thanks to its strong position on a rocky spur, had been almost impregnably fortified. But the attack we looked on at from the Garden of Clermont, on Sunday, February 28th, carried the victorious French troops to the top of the ridge, and made them masters of a part of the village. Driven from it again that night, they were to retake it after a five-day struggle of exceptional violence and prodigal heroism, and are now securely established there in a position described as of vital importance to the operations. But what it cost, Sir Gabriel said, when we saw her again a few days later. 2. The time had come to remember our promise and hurry away from Clermont. But a few miles farther our attention was arrested by the sight of the Red Cross over a village house. The house was little more than a hovel, the village, Blercourt it was called, a mere hamlet of scattered cottages and cow-stables, a place so easily overlooked that it seemed likely our supplies might be needed there. An orderly went to find the médecin chez, and we waded after him through the mud to one after another of the cottages in which, with admirable ingenuity, he had managed to create out of next to nothing the indispensable requirements of a second-line ambulance, 
sterilizing and disinfecting appliances, a bandage-room, a pharmacy, a well-filled woodshed, and a clean kitchen in which tisane were brewing over a cheerful fire. A detachment of cavalry was quartered in the village, which the trampling of hoofs had turned into a great morass, and as we picked our way from cottage to cottage in the doctor's wake, he told us of the expedients to which he had been put to secure even the few hovels into which his patients were crowded. It was a complaint we were often to hear repeated along this line of the front, where troops and wounded are packed in thousands into villages meant to house four or five hundred, and we admired the skill and devotion with which he had dealt with the difficulty, and managed to lodge his patients decently. We came back to the high road, and he asked us if we should like to see the church. It was about three o'clock, and in the low porch the curé was ringing the bell for vespers. We pushed open the inner doors and went in. The church was without aisles, and down the nave stood four rows of wooden cots with brown blankets. In almost every one lay a soldier, the doctor's worst cases. Few of them wounded, the greater number stricken with fever, bronchitis, frostbite, pleurisy, or some other form of trench sickness too severe to permit of their being carried further from the front. One or two heads turned on the pillows as we entered, but for the most part the men did not move. The curé, meanwhile, passing around to the sacristy, had come out before the altar in his vestments, followed by a little white acolyte. A handful of women, probably the only civil inhabitants left, and some of the soldiers we had seen about the village, had entered the church and stood together between the rows of cots, and the service began. It was a sunless afternoon, and the picture was all in monastic shades of black and white and ashen grey, the sick under their earth-coloured blankets their livid faces against the pillows, the black dresses of the women—they seemed all to be in mourning—and the silver haze floating out from the little acolyte's censer. The only light in the scene—the candle gleams on the altar, and their reflection in the embroideries of the curé's chasuble—were like a faint streak of sunset on the winter dusk. For a while the long Latin cadences sounded on through the church, but presently the curé took up in French the canticle of the Sacred Heart composed during the War of 1870, and the little congregation joined their trembling voices in the refrain, Sauvez, sauvez la France, ne l'abandonnez pas. The reiterated appeal rose in a sob above the rows of bodies in the nave. Sauvez, sauvez la France, the women wailed it near the altar. The soldiers took it up from the door in stronger tones, but the bodies in the cots never stirred, and more and more as the day faded. The church looked like a quiet graveyard in a battlefield. After we had left Saint-Menud, the sense of the nearness and all-pervadingness of the war became even more vivid. Every road branching away to our left was a finger touching a red wound. Varennes, Le Four de Paris, Le Bois de la Gruie were not more than eight or ten miles to the north. Along our own road the stream of motor-vans and the trains of ammunition grew longer and more frequent. Once we passed a long line of seventy-fives going single file up a hillside, farther on we watched a big detachment of artillery galloping across a stretch of open country. The movement of supplies was continuous, and every village through which we passed swarmed with soldiers busy loading or unloading the big vans, or clustered about the commissariat motors while hams and quarters of beef were handed out. As we approached Verdun, the cannonade had grown louder again and when we reached the walls of the town and passed under the iron teeth of the portcullis, we felt ourselves in one of the last outposts of a mighty line of defence. The desolation of Verdun is as impressive as the feverish activity of Chalons. 
The civil population was evacuated in September, and only a small percentage have returned. Nine-tenths of the shops are closed, and as the troops are nearly all in the trenches, there is hardly any movement in the streets. The first duty of the traveller who has successfully passed the challenge of the sentinel at the gates is to climb the steep hill to the citadel at the top of the town. Here the military authorities inspect one's papers, and deliver a permis de séjour which must be verified by the police before lodgings can be obtained. We found the principal hotel much less crowded than the haute Merdieu at Chalon, though many of the officers of the garrison mess there. The whole atmosphere of the place was different, silent, concentrated, passive. To the chance observer, Verdun appears to live only in its hospitals, and of these there are fourteen within the walls alone. As darkness fell, the streets became completely deserted, and the cannonade seemed to grow nearer and more incessant. That first night the hush was so intense that every reverberation from the dark hills beyond the walls brought out in the mind its separate vision of destruction, and then, just as the strained imagination could bear no more, the thunder ceased. A moment later, in a court below my windows, a pigeon began to coo, and all night long the two sounds strangely alternated. On entering the gates, the first sight to attract us had been a colony of roughly built bungalows, scattered over the miry slopes of a little park adjoining the railway station, and surmounted by the sign, Evacuation Hospital No. 6. The next morning we went to visit it. A part of the station buildings has been adapted to hospital use, and among them a great roofless hall, which the surgeon in charge has covered in with canvas and divided down its length into a double row of tents. Each tent contains two wooden cots, scrupulously clean and raised high above the floor, and the immense ward is warmed by a row of stoves down the central passage. In the bungalows across the road are beds for the patients who are to be kept for a time before being transferred to the hospitals in the town. In one bungalow an operating-room has been installed, in another are the bathing arrangements for the newcomers from the trenches. Every possible device for the relief of the wounded has been carefully thought out and intelligently applied by the surgeon in charge and the infirmière major who indefatigably seconds him. Evacuation Hospital No. 6 sprang up in an hour almost on the dreadful August day when four thousand wounded lay on stretchers between the railway station and the gate of the little park across the way and it has gradually grown into the model of what such a hospital may become, in skilful and devoted hands. Verdun has other excellent hospitals for the care of the severely wounded who cannot be sent farther from the front. Among them, Saint-Nicolas, in a big airy building on the Meuse, is an example of a great French military hospital at its best. But I visited few others, for the main object of my journey was to get to some of the second-lined ambulances beyond the town. The first we went to was in a small village to the north of Verdun, not far from the enemy's lines at Cossenvoy, and was fairly representative of all the others. The dreary, muddy village was crammed with troops, and the ambulance had been installed at haphazard in such houses as the military authorities could spare. The arrangements were primitive, but clean, and even the dentist had set up his apparatus in one of the rooms. The men lay on mattresses or in wooden cots, and the rooms were heated by stoves. The great need— here, as everywhere, was for blankets and clean underclothing, for the wounded are brought in from the front encrusted with frozen mud, and usually without having washed or changed for weeks. There are no women nurses in these second-lined ambulances, but all the army doctors we saw seemed intelligent and anxious to do the best they could for their men in conditions of unusual hardship. 
The principal obstacle in their way is the overcrowded state of the villages. Thousands of soldiers are camped in all of them, in hygienic conditions that would be bad enough for men in health, and there is also a great need for light diet, since the hospital commissariat of the front apparently supplies no invalid foods, and men burning with fever have to be fed on meat and vegetables. In the afternoon we started out again in a snowstorm, over a desolate rolling country to the south of Verdun. The wind blew fiercely across the whitened slopes, and no one was in sight but the sentries marching up and down the railway lines, and an occasional cavalryman patrolling the lonely road. Nothing can exceed the mournfulness of this depopulated land. We might have been wandering over the wilds of Poland. We ran some twenty miles down the steel-grey Meuse to a village about four miles west of Les Epages, the spot where, for weeks past, a desperate struggle had been going on. There must have been a lull in the fighting that day, for the cannon had ceased. But the scene at the point where we left the motor gave us the sense of being on the very edge of the conflict. The long, straggling village lay on the river, and the trampling of cavalry and the hauling of guns had turned the land about it into a mud-flat. Before the primitive cottage where the doctor's office had been installed were the motors of the surgeon and the medical inspector who had accompanied us. Nearby stood the usual flock of grey motor-vans, and all about was the coming and going of cavalry remounts, and riding up of officers, the unloading of supplies, the incessant activity of mud-splashed sergeants and men. The main ambulance was in a grange, of which the two stories had been partitioned off into wards. Under the cobwebby rafters the men lay in rows on clean pallets, and big stoves made the rooms dry and warm. But the great superiority of this ambulance was its nearness to a canal-boat, which had been fitted up with hot douche. The boat was spotlessly clean, and each cabin was shut off by a gay curtain of red-flowered chintz. Those curtains must do almost as much as the hot water to make over the morale of the men. They were the most comforting sight of the day. Farther north and on the other bank of the Meuse lies another large village which has been turned into a colony of Eclop. Fifteen hundred sick or exhausted men are housed there, and there are no hot douche or chintz curtains to cheer them. We were taken first to the church, a large featureless building at the head of the street. In the doorway our passage was obstructed by a mountain of damp straw which a gang of hostler soldiers were pitchforking out of the aisles. The interior of the church was dim and suffocating. Between the pillars hung screens of plaited straw, forming little enclosures in each of which about a dozen sick men lay on more straw, without mattresses or blankets. No beds, no tables, no chairs, no washing appliances. In their muddy clothes, as they come from the front, they are bedded down on the stone floor like cattle till they are well enough to go back to their job. It was a pitiful contrast to the little church at Blaircourt, with the altar-lights twinkling above the clean beds and one wondered if even so near the front it had to be. "'The African village, we call it,' one of our companions said with a laugh. "'But the African village has blue sky over it, and a clear stream runs between its mud huts. We had been told at saint Manoud that for military reasons we must follow a more southerly direction on our return to Chalon, and when we left Verdun we took the road to Bar-le-Duc. It runs southwest over beautiful broken country, untouched by war except for the fact that its villages, like all the others in this region, are either deserted or occupied by troops. As we left Verdun behind us, the sound of the cannon grew fainter and died out, and we had the feeling that we were gradually passing beyond the flaming boundaries into a more normal world. But suddenly, at a crossroad, a signpost snatched us back to war. saint Miel, eighteen kilometres. 
Samuel, the danger spot of the region, the weak joint in the armour. There it lay, up that harmless-looking by-road, not much more than ten miles away. A ten minutes' dash would have brought us into the thick of the grey coats and spiked helmets. The shadow of that signpost followed us for miles, darkening the landscape like the shadow from a racing storm-cloud. Bar-le-Duc seemed unaware of the cloud. The charming old town was in its normal state of provincial apathy. Few soldiers were about, and here at last civilian life again predominated. After a few days on the edge of the war, in that intermediate region under its solemn spell, there is something strangely lowering to the mood in the first sight of a busy, unconscious community. One looks instinctively in the eyes of the passers-by, for a reflection of that other vision, and feels diminished by contact with people going so indifferently about their business. A little way beyond Bar-le-Duc we came on another phase of the war vision, for our route lay exactly in the track of the August invasion, and between Bar-le-Duc and Vitry-le-François the high road is lined with ruined towers. The first we came to was Lémont, a large village wiped out as if a cyclone had beheaded it. Then comes Revigny, a town of over two thousand inhabitants, less completely levelled because its houses were more solidly built, but a spectacle of more tragic desolation with its wide streets winding between scorched and contorted fragments of masonry, bits of shop-fronts, handsome doorways, the colonnaded street of a public building. A few miles farther lies the most piteous of the group, the village of Alts le marupt once pleasantly set in gardens and orchards, now an ugly waste like the others, and with a little church so stripped and wounded and dishonoured that it lies there by the roadside like a human victim. In this part of the country, which is one of many cross-roads, we began to have unexpected difficulty in finding our way, for the names and distances on the milestones have all been effaced, the signposts thrown down, and the enamelled plaque on the houses at the entrance to the villages removed. One report has it that this precaution was taken by the inhabitants, at the approach of the invading army, another that the Germans themselves demolished the signposts and plastered over the milestones in order to paint on them misleading and encouraging distances. The result is extremely bewildering, for all the villages being either in ruins or uninhabited, there is no one to question but the soldiers one meets, and their answer is almost invariably, We don't know. We don't belong here. One is in luck if one comes across a sentinel who knows the name of the village he is guarding. It was the strangest of sensations to find ourselves in a chartless wilderness within sixty or seventy miles of Paris, and to wander as we did for hours across a high, heathery waste, with wide blue distances to north and south, and in all the scene not a landmark by means of which we could make a guess at our whereabouts. One of our haphazard turns at last brought us into a muddy by-road, with the long lines of seventy-fives ranged along its banks like grey ant-eaters in some monstrous menagerie. A little farther on we came to a bemired village, swarming with artillery and cavalry, and found ourselves in the thick of an encampment, just on the move. It seems improbable that we were meant to be there, for our arrival caused such surprise that no sentry remembered to challenge us, and obsequiously saluting sous-officier, instantly cleared away for the motor. So, by a happy accident, we caught one more war-picture, all of vehement movement, as we passed out of the zone of war. We were still very distinctly in it on returning to Chalons, which, if it had seemed packed on our previous visit, was now quivering and cracking with fresh crowds. The stir about the fountain in the square before the Haute-Merdieu was more melodramatic than ever. 
Every one was in a hurry, every one booted and mud-splashed, and spurred or sworded or dispatch-bagged, and somehow labelled as a member of the huge military beehive. The privilege of telephoning and telegraphing being denied to civilians in the war-zone, it was ominous to arrive at nightfall on such a crowded scene, and we were not surprised to be told that there was not a room left at the Haute Mer Dieu, and that even the sofas in the reading-room had been let for the night. At every other inn in the town we met with the same answer, and finally we decided to ask permission to go on as far as Epernay, about twelve miles off. At headquarters we were told that our request could not be granted. No motors are allowed to circulate after nightfall in the zone of war, and the officer charged with the distribution of motor permits pointed out that, even if an exception were made in our favour, we should probably be turned back by the first sentinel we met, only to find ourselves unable to re-enter Chalons without another permit. This alternative was so alarming that we began to think ourselves relatively lucky to be on the right side of the gates, and we went back to the Haute Mer Dieu to squeeze into a crowded corner of the restaurant for dinner. The hope that some one might have suddenly left the hotel in the interval was not realized, but after dinner we learned from the landlady that she had certain rooms permanently reserved for the use of the staff, and that, as these rooms had not yet been called for that evening, we might possibly be allowed to occupy them for the night. At Chalons the headquarters are in the prefecture, a coldly handsome building of the eighteenth century, and there, in a majestic stone vestibule, beneath the gilded ramp of a great festal staircase, we waited in anxious suspense, among the orderlies and estafettes, while our unusual request was considered. The result of the deliberation was an expression of regret. Nothing could be done for us, as officers might at any moment arrive from the general headquarters and require the rooms. It was then past nine o'clock, and bitterly cold and we began to wonder. Finally the polite officer who had been charged to dismiss us, moved to compassion at our plight, offered to give us a laissez-passer back to Paris. But Paris was about a hundred and twenty-five miles off, the night was dark, the cold was piercing, and at every cross-road and railway crossing a sentinel would have to be convinced of our right to go further. We remembered the warning given us earlier in the evening, and declining the offer went out again into the cold. And just then chance took pity on us. In the restaurant we had run across a friend attached to the staff, and now meeting him again in the depth of our difficulty, we were told of lodgings to be found nearby. He could not take us there, for it was past the hour when he had a right to be out, or we either, for that matter, since curfew sounds at nine in Chalons. But he told us how to find our way through the maze of little unlit streets about the cathedral, standing there beside the motor in the icy darkness of the deserted square, and whispering hastily as he turned to leave us, "'You ought not to be out so late.' But the word to-night is Gina. When you give it to the chauffeur, be sure no sentinel overhears you." With that he was up the wide steps, the glass doors had closed on him, and I stood there in the pitch-black night, suddenly unable to believe that I was I, or Chalon Chalon, or that a young man who in Paris drops in to dine with me, and talk over new books and plays, had been whispering a password in my ear to carry me unchallenged to a house a few streets away. The sense of unreality produced by that one word was so overwhelming that, for a blissful moment, the whole fabric of what I had been experiencing, the whole huge and oppressive and unescapable fact of the war, slipped away like a torn cobweb, and I seemed to see behind it the reassuring face of things as they used to be. The next morning dispelled that vision. We woke to a noise of guns closer and more incessant than even the first night's cannonade at Verdun, and when we went out into the streets it seemed as if, overnight, a new army had sprung out of the ground. 
waylaid at one corner after another by the long tide of troops streaming out through the town to the northern suburbs, we saw in turn all the various divisions of the unfolding frieze, first the infantry and artillery, the sappers and miners, the endless trains of guns and ammunition, then the long line of grey supply-wagons, and finally the stretcher-bearers following the Red Cross ambulances. All the story of a day's warfare was written in the spectacle of that endless, silent flow to the front, and we were to read it again, a few days later, in the terse announcement of renewed activity about sweep, and of the bloody strip of ground gained between Perth and Beaujour. End of chapter 2